Welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101 episode, we are joined by Kate Moriusef, a dedicated well-being coach and the host of the ADHD Women's Wellbeing podcast. Kate's mission is to help individuals, especially those with ADHD, to find calm, balance, and validation. Kate shares her insights into the late diagnosis of ADHD in women, a topic of growing relevance. She explores the reasons behind this phenomenon, whether it's due to oversight or triggered by life-changing like the menopause. Kate also discusses the common symptoms and challenges that older women with ADHD often face. As a well-being coach, she offers valuable guidance on effective treatments and support systems for women navigating ADHD. Kate delves into the emotional struggles and stigma many women with ADHD encounter, especially in their roles as mothers and provides advice on managing these challenges. Will you start by telling us why you think so many women are being diagnosed with ADHD later on in life? Yeah, I mean, we're hearing this stigmatized kind of notion of, you know, why so many people being diagnosed with ADHD, especially women. Is it a trend? Is it, you know, this sort of TikTok thing that's been going on? And actually, it's because we never knew that ADHD could manifest properly in girls. And, you know, up until about 10 years ago, we thought maybe 15 years ago, we thought that ADHD kind of like disappeared as you become an adult. What we now know is that there's an exact same ratio of men and women, girls and boys that have ADHD and it doesn't disappear. You're born with it and it stays with you. It just kind of changes and evolves over time. And it can look very different in girls and women than it does in boys and men. So it's just lack of awareness, miseducation, and really people needing to be more informed. And unfortunately, there's been so many women who have lived with ADHD and diagnosed for so long, been misdiagnosed, um, haven't understood themselves, haven't been able to really grapple with what's been going on and been given the wrong medication, the wrong type of therapy. And now they're understanding that has been neurodivergence or ADHD in the mix. And it's really important that we build this awareness so more women can get the support they deserve. And as far as I understand, women tend to present as a lot more ruminative and introverted and sort of a lot more of the behaviors go on internally, as opposed to boys that can be the sort of obvious candidates for being diagnosed with ADHD because they are so outwardly displaying symptoms that we might associate with ADHD, like being easily distracted or you're playing up in the classroom at school or is that correct yeah again I think there's a slight stigma where we're now understanding that actually we can women can present with the typical hyperactive kind of qualities of ADHD but also on the flip side very often the hyperactive side of ADHD is internal like you said it's a huge amount of anxiety, overthinking, catastrophizing, ruminating, 
just so much kind of turmoil that it feels like we can never settle, like our nervous systems are constantly dysregulated. But as women, we are sort of conditioned to mask things, to tone things down, to kind of like hide, hide who we truly are because we don't want to seem any different to our peers. And we we need to kind of dispel these myths and really allow women to be who they need to be and be able to discharge energy and be who they are and be restless and fidget and a bit hyperactive or whatever that is, if that is going to help them remove some of the internal turmoil that we're finding. And I think as you allude to, masking is something that women tend to be better at. And it's something that comes up in autism actually a lot as well, which means for listeners who don't know, it's sort of basically mimicking behaviors that you see other people displaying whilst not actually really playing them out yourself. And it's sort of, again, like you said, it feeds into this whole notion of being expected to behave in a particular way and you see other people behaving in a certain way. So although you might want to do something different, you actually just copy what they're doing essentially and you learn from that, which can be quite a dangerous route because I think, again, it it doesn't get to the root of the problem and neither does it help with anxiety or rumination. So if anything, it just puts fuel on the fire really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, masking is exhausting, it's depleting, it's draining. It leads to burnout cycles very often we don't even know we're masking. We don't even know that it's a thing because we're just kind of mirroring and copying and looking at other people who think they've got their shit together and thinking that they know what's going on in the world, that they've got this sort of, we hear this quite a lot. It's like we always thought that someone else got a guidebook to life, that they knew things that we didn't know. And actually, you know, that's when we start recognizing that if I did things my way, if I allowed myself to um, live authentically and I spoke my truth more and I did the things that weren't drummed out of me as a child or told that was wrong or a bad way of doing things, life would be easier because when we do things more intuitively and we do things the way that work for us, that feel good to us, it feels more effortless and easy. But we've kind of been told to do things in a neurotypical way, which is very often the long way around for us. You know, we'll, again, we'll hear this narrative of just life just feels really hard. Like we just feel like we're always doing things the long way around. But actually, if things were normalized to do things the way we want to, the way things that feel good and intuitively good to us, we'd probably get a lot more done and we'd achieve a lot more things, which is why there's an underlying sense of when people go and get their ADHD diagnosis, they feel like they've not fulfilled their potential, that they feel like they've got a lot more to give but there's been lots of roadblocks and barriers along the way because maybe their executive functioning has not been able to match their academia or the way they regulate their mood or all sorts of things. It's just not matched the environment that they've been told is a normal environment. So it's really kind of breaking things down again and recognizing, okay, what works for me? What environments work for me? How can I live, work, have relationships that work better on my terms? And it is, it's very much sort of unraveling and layering and relearning a new way of living that feels good to us. And importantly, is is good to our nervous system, which is probably dysregulated and hypervigilant the whole time. And I think that's the case with a lot of mental health conditions. It goes back to this question of what is normal. And actually, no one's normal is another person's normal. And we're, we're fed this narrative that we need to aspire to be normal. And I think particularly if you are neurodivergent, it can be very, very isolating. And it can feel like you're constantly fighting an uphill battle, as you say, it's, it's a case of actually being open with people about what your struggles are, and then 
allowing them to work with the way that your mind works. Because I know for me with OCD, it's like as soon as I tell people what my issues are and what my struggles are, it makes it a lot easier for them to then respond and to them then to almost create an environment where we can work happily together. Because otherwise, it's all this miscommunication and misfiring happens, and then neither party gets out of the other what what they can, and and your potential is never really reached. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know what you're saying there is is accommodations and to have people understanding people, supportive community, people who understand you, and understand that what you're going through isn't weird. You just need different things to help you in your environment to for you to achieve and to do well. And, you know, if you're working in an office and we very often are, it's very difficult sort of with all the stimulus and all the, the background noise and all sorts of, you know, things if we've got sensory processing issues, to be able to have someone that we can speak to and ask for certain accommodations to make life easier so we can do the job that we want to do. You know, if you're in a career that you're really enjoying, but you're feeling exhausted and burnt out by the music on in the background or the really bright lights or the people chatting next to you or the hot desking or little things like that where we can understand what's depleting us and draining us and going to speak to someone and asking for some accommodations, it can make a massive difference. You know, it really can. And, you know, we really do find that a lot of people who have been undiagnosed neuro- neurodivergent for a long time, they change jobs, careers, because they can't quite feel settled in the environment that they're in. So to have an understanding of ourselves, you know, the self-understanding, and then be able to then transfer this to someone who can then hopefully facilitate accommodations within reason, I think is really, really vital. When you're working with clients and going to sort of focus on women with ADHD, do you think certain career paths are particularly suited for them and and what kind of things do they tend to excel at and what's maybe something that they might struggle with? So it's really interesting. You'd think, again, this sort of this um, generalized view of ADHD is kind of chaotic and creative and enthusiastic and all these things, yes. I have had clients from every different spectrum and it's fascinating. You know, I've had lots and lots of doctors, accountants, lawyers, landscape gardeners, dentists, nannies, caterers, chefs. Honestly, I can't, it's just a full spectrum that there's no one size fits all, which is really interesting because if you think this current sort of statistics of one in five people are neurodivergent, so sort of 20% of the population, it shows up differently for everyone. So my ADHD looks very different to someone else's ADHD. People say to me all the time, oh, how can you have ADHD? You know, you've got kids, you've got a house, you've got a job, you do all these things and you're organized. But the way it shows up for me is very different to someone who really struggles with time management and tidying and cleaning and organization. And that's why we need to break these taboos because if we start putting people in boxes or that's how ADHD should look or that's how OCD should look or that's how autism should look, then we're just kind of perpetuating these stereotypes and we're not really connecting. We're not really getting into where we need to be getting into. And is that like really understanding each other for who we are and how some of our challenges present, but also how our many, you know, greatnesses present as well. And with ADHD, it can range from really great communication skills to empathy, to creativity, to problem solving, resourcefulness, thinking, you know, we hear this all the time, thinking outside the box, 
But also we can be really shy and we can be really introverted. You may see someone who is amazing on stage, but when they come off stage, they have huge social anxiety. So it's a really full spectrum of how it can show up. I'd love for you to say what you think about whether the menopause can trigger ADHD and the hormonal changes that result from the menopause, going through the menopause or during the perimenopause. Absolutely. So this is a real passion of mine and I've created, I don't think there's anything else out there at the moment. It's called the ADHD Women's Hormone Series. And I've spoken to about 12 or 13 different experts all about the interrelation of hormones and neurodivergence in women. And it's really important to hone in on this because hormonal fluctuations impact how our ADHD can show up throughout life. So we may have, like I say, we're sort of born neurodivergent, but as our hormones kick in and estrogen and dopamine are very interconnected. So for girls, you know, if they're going through puberty and their estrogen levels are rising, then we may notice certain differences. But also when we are then having our period and with the first two weeks of our cycle, when our estrogen levels are higher, we may find life easier. We may have better cognition, better sleep, better mood, better executive functioning because our estrogen is at an optimal level, which is then, you know, helping with our um, dopamine. It's managing our cortisol levels. We're able to lean more into healthier choices, lifestyle, exercise, all these different things. We feel like we're on top of our work. You know, the normal things that may challenge us don't feel as difficult. But then as our estrogen starts tailing off and we are creeping down towards the end of our cycle, it can feel much harder and much more of an uphill struggle. And there's a very big correlation between PMDD, which is a much more severe, you know, form of PMS, where we can feel incredibly low, sometimes suicidal. And the last sort of two weeks of our period, the last week of our period, where it just feels so challenging. And this can happen every single month for neurodivergent women. When we don't understand the connection, when we don't know that this is about to happen, and I'm a really big advocate for cycle tracking, when we can begin cycle tracking and knowing where we are, even if we're on the pill, on the coil, post-menopause, and we're not even getting periods anymore, there's always a way to cycle track as to where we are because this is then the language that we can speak. We can understand and we give ourselves self-compassion and this forgiveness and this understanding and we can tweak our diaries, our lifestyle. We can give ourselves more time to decompress and the self-care then kicks in. So yes, in a very long-winded way, 100% hormones are connected with ADHD. I'm just curious as to whether you see a rise in diagnoses amongst menopausal or perimenopausal women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are. Again, it's a combination of awareness that's built over the past, you know, five years. I mean, I've been working this field for three and a half, four years. And even in that time, when I first started, I started to understand all of this. It was the information was few and far between. It was really difficult. You know, there was no podcast. It was very difficult to read and research. There was books there, but it was mostly about boys and men. So even in the past four years, we're still learning, we're still gathering information. And, you know, according to the many doctors and experts I've spoken to, 
sadly, the the evidence isn't there. The evidence, so we, that we're working on anecdotal evidence, not scientific evidence. So the anecdotal evidence that I'm seeing in my practice as a, as a coach working with only neurodivergent women, yes, it is. We're getting diagnoses in our 30s and 40s because very often we're taking in a child who we suspect has got ADHD or autism and we're recognizing a lot of the symptoms in ourselves. Or the doctor then asks the parent and says, you know, do you suspect there's, there's any you know neurodivergence going on in with you or your partner? So there's lots of things being flagged up and it is genetic. It's almost something like 98% genetic. I heard this this statistic, it's more genetic than the color of your eyes or the color of your hair or your height. So when we are getting a child diagnosed, very often we're looking at one, one or both of the parents. And when we're getting diagnosed, we're very often seeing and diagnosed neurodivergence in a parent or a sibling or an aunt or an uncle. So it's really important to have this awareness because sadly, you know, in that generation of our parents, there will have been so many mental health issues that they weren't getting the support and the help for. So much dysfunction, so much chaos, so much addiction that it's now time to break these generational cycles, time to break these patterns so we can help ourselves and co-regulate for our children and the the next generation so they have more self-awareness and most importantly, they have more self-compassion. And I know you said that we can't really generalize about people's symptoms and how ADHD plays out in different people, but can you draw any similarities between women who are older who have ADHD and their symptoms or does it vary completely? It really can vary. I mean, what we know anecdotally is that as we chop and change through life and we have lots of pressures and expectations and ups and downs, that does impact our uh, the way our ADHD shows up and our resilience. And we can have had you know periods in our life where we've really, really struggled and life just feels so challenging. But we also see people who ha- are succeeding and who are thriving, who maybe have are now in a healthy relationship financially they're more secure they're getting the coaching or the therapy they're on the medication they've got better self-understanding listen with with age comes wisdom we're able to put things into perspective the things that bothered us in our 20s may not bother us in our 50s we stop caring as much we're more authentic more truthful we're able to drop that mask and kind of say this is who I am you know like it or lump it so there's lots of kind of life wisdom and expansion, you know, all that, our experiences kind of navigate our ADHD as well. And also, you know, if we have got kids, we see ourselves and our kids and we see maybe how we were parented and how we don't want to parent our kids. And so we're kind of given this opportunity to rectify the path a little bit. So lots of self-healing. But on the flip side, I also see a lot of people being, you know, diagnosed in their 60s and 70s and it's taken them that long for them to have this level of self-acceptance, this permission slip to finally be them. And it's so sad and it is really heartbreaking because to live most of your life, you know, decades of your life, not understanding, not knowing, being misdiagnosed, being told that you've got all different types of mental health issues, but no one's ever said about neurodivergence you know, whether that's ADHD and or autism, and you just have told yourself this ongoing script that there's something wrong with you, that you're broken, that you need to be fixed, 
that you just need to keep trying harder, that there's something wrong with you. You just need to change the way you're doing things and then everything will be okay. That's exhausting. And I send so much compassion, you know, and I hear this and I also get a lot of, it's a privilege when I work with these people because I see this shift in their energy and I see the shift in their their mental health, their emotional well-being, their self-acceptance when they just kind of go, oh, if only I'd known this. And there's a lot of grief. It's a huge amount of grief to process that their whole life has gone under a radar that they never knew about, that no one could help them with. So it's a very mixed bag. But my hope is that the as this awareness grows, more people are being diagnosed earlier on in life. So they're able to stop being like just leaning more into who they are authentically, like leaning into, you know, I, I had um, a client who was like a lawyer and all she really wanted to do was be a landscape gardener. She just wanted to work outside, away from a desk, outside with her hands, not on a computer, wearing comfortable clothes. And it took her until she was in her like late 40s and 50s to kind of go, that's what I'm doing. I'm changing my career. This is what I've always wanted to do. And she was so much happier that she made that decision. So I want to be able to offer this opportunity for more people to lean into who they really want to be and not who they think they should be and who they think they've got to be conditioned to be. So that's really powerful stuff. I would argue, though, that even with a diagnosis, like from my experience, it can still be really, really challenging. I mean, you still feel the shame. You still feel the judgment. You still think, why does my brain work in this way? Like, why am I so different? And I wish it was a case of, you know, you get a diagnosis and they're like, oh, okay, fine. That's okay. I have... I have ADHD and therefore, but you're, you are still fighting against the grain in in some respects. And I just think we haven't quite reached a point in society worldwide yet where there's an existence which exists, which is living with neurodivergence, shame-free and judgment-free, sadly. I totally get what you're saying and I validate it because you're right. The diagnosis is just the beginning, but I think when you've lived with so much unknown and misunderstanding and just really genuinely like why am I like this when we get that confirmation from a doctor that yes it's not you you haven't got a personality disorder or a fault or there's not something intrinsically wrong with you there's something neurological that maybe medication can help with but also there's lots of different other tools that potentially could ease the pain a little bit but when we have then got to kind of go, right now what? Like life's still going to feel difficult in this world. And I do see that a lot. And, you know, it's not a magic bullet just getting the diagnosis and, you know, medication if that's what you want. It's almost like a change of mindset and it's shifting the dial every day. And I talk about this a lot. It's just like little tiny shifts in our mindset, but also shifts in our patterns and how we want to do things and our boundaries and how we talk to ourselves and these little tiny incremental shifts that may not come to any fruition in a week, a month, even a year. But you look back five years later and you look at that fact that version of yourself five years ago and go, actually, things have changed and life does feel easier. I am doing things differently. So the day-to-day stuff can still feel really difficult, but sometimes when we're given that perspective of looking back a few years later, I do think we are able to kind of say, actually, yeah, I do feel more at ease. Like, And that's when I say, you know, how much therapy and coaching and, and things like that can really help. 
Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. What treatments and support systems do you see as being the most effective for women who are suffering with ADHD? So obviously I've just been, you know, speaking about therapy and coaching. I think it's really important. I think with a therapist, you know, really finding someone who understands the nuances of neurodivergence. So you want someone who can really understand and get it and know where certain therapeutic techniques aren't really going to work. Where we know how the ADHD brain specifically can spiral, can catastrophize. There's something called rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which can be incredibly debilitating, where um, we feel rejection so viscerally and we can fear criticism and feedback and feeling left out and so many different ways it can impact our relationships, our friendships, our careers, that if someone understands that, they can say, right, do you understand that this is where your RSD may be flaring up? It's almost like, seeing it, naming it, taming it, and then coming up with ways and strategies that work for you that can help you. So there's lots of different challenges with ADHD, which range from disordered eating, OCD, addiction, things like the RSD, anxiety, sleep issues. It can be all encompassing. And so when we find someone that really understands that and really speaks our language, whether that is a therapist or a coach, where it almost kind of goes without saying that we just understand that can be incredibly helpful. Lifestyle, for me, I mean, that's a big part of the work that I do is is helping women really understand how powerful self-care and well-being and prioritizing downtime and movement and nutrition and all sorts of things, you know, holistic practices that can help regulate our nervous systems. And I talk about the nervous system a lot because I genuinely believe that our nervous system has a big, you know, interplay with our neurodivergence because it's a matter of safety and connection. And when we've not had safety and connection throughout our life, because we've not understood why we felt ostracized or we've not felt why, why we haven't connected with people, why there's been feelings of danger in our immediate environment, because there's been you know, dysfunction and chaos, then understanding and unpacking all of that and understanding our nervous system and then learning ways that we can start regulating it that we have within our control is really powerful. So there's lots of different aspects and different ways that we can look at this. And we may have found that if you've had a late in life diagnosis, we may have come up with lots of tools and strategies and been known to us that have been really helpful, lots of scaffolding, lots of sort of hacks and and ways that we've managed this undiagnosed brain of ours, this this difference in, in our brain, because we have to give ourselves credit for that, like our ingenuity, our resourcefulness, our problem solving, because we've had to navigate a neurotypical world where we've had expectations put on us that don't feel right. So when we've come up with this scaffolding, like I know a lot of people that but they find running really powerful or any type of movement exercise. There's a lot of yoga teachers out there that are being diagnosed with ADHD because they've been so desperate to find something grounding and calming that they've gone in and wanted to learn yoga so they can 
do this, you know, every day. And um, meditation teachers, mindfulness teachers, it's incredible. You kind of think they're really, really zen, but actually they are the people who need the tools more. So lean into the holistic tools and the resources and the things that really speak your language, spirituality, faith. Being of service, there's a lot of people that work in therapeutic settings with ADHD. And there are a lot of, like I mentioned, doctors, but nurses, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, all sorts of different sort of therapists, because we've been so keen to understand ourselves and, and trying to get to the bottom of what's been going on for us that we've kind of like projected this and, you know, thought, well, if I can't help myself, maybe I'm going to help others as well. I'm curious as to how you advise your clients, particularly how to manage relationships with partners and how it's best to communicate within marriages, within other relationships with children. Should one put in boundaries? What do you advise your clients? I mean, obviously, every situation is very personal and it's very different, but we do see a higher ratio of relationship breakdowns with ADHD specifically, divorce. People with ADHD can be very challenging to live with. And I say this as someone with ADHD. We have mood ups and downs, dysregulation. Our executive functioning can be really difficult to live with. We can be disorganized, time blindness. We can be messy. We can have outbursts. We can be impulsive. You know, I mentioned addiction. Addiction can is a really big part of ADHD. So that can show up as gambling, drugs, drink, sex, porn, shopping. Financially, we can really struggle because there's impulsivity there. And our sleep, our sleep can be all dysregulated. So when we put that in a, in a mix, it can be really hard to live with someone who is a bit of a roller coaster. However, when we again get a diagnosis and we start understanding that person, we come with more compassion and we can start making changes from an empowered state. That's when hopefully, you know, relationships can be helped, but we can also help our children, but it all has to come from education and awareness and understanding and compassion because when it's not there, arguments, blow-ups, really like chaotic situations. And I talked about co-regulation, when we can co-regulate, when we can model a regulated nervous system. Very often I speak to people and they will tell me about their childhood and at least one of the parents would be completely dysregulated and there would be outbursts and shouting and it wouldn't feel safe in the house. And then that then impacts the child because obviously the child co-regulates with the adult because that's the, the parent's job. And when the adult is regulated, so the adult is having therapy, the adult is getting support, looking after their li lifestyle, leaning into holistic practices, taking medication and sleeping, you know, and, and going to bed at the right time, eating, hopefully, you know, three meals a day, those type of things. It can help the child regulate, even if they're feeling dysregulated. So, to cut a long story short, it's really important to understand the impact neurodivergence can have on relationships. I'm not a relationship expert, but there are, I know Melissa Orlov is an ADHD relationship expert. She's got some great books out there. Um, you can hear her on podcasts. She's been on my podcast. She really helps understand how ADHD can show up in a relationship, but also how we can navigate that and hopefully have healthier relationships and more loving and more accepting and compassionate relationships as well, because none of us are perfect. 
and neurotypical, neurodivergent, you know, we're all going to have all sorts of things going on for us. It's not just if you're neurodivergent, you're going to be the harder person to live with, you know. Sometimes there's just an energy mismatch as well. We've got to remember that. We hear a lot that someone with ADHD marries someone with autism, you know, because the sort of neurodivergence is attracted to each other, but then they can headbutt but heads as well. And it's understanding how one person may need a certain level of control and another person may need a certain level of autonomy and freedom. That one person works really well with lots of clutter and eclectic collectibles and another person just needs a house that is really streamlined and uh, minimalist. So we need to work with that and see what's salvageable and where we can meet halfway as well. I know that all relationships take lots of work as well. Yeah, compromise being the crucial word, I think, in there. Yeah. Okay, I would uh, love for you to tell us what strategies work best for you in maintaining your well-being now that you've come so far on your journey with ADHD. I mean, I love that you say I've come so far. I mean, I still feel like I'm just kind of still navigating it. And I really do. I mean, I... Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah, like I still kind of go, why did I not know that? Like, why did I not see that? I should have known that. But what I do know is I have to have autonomy. For me, it's a massive value of mine. I have to be able to know that I have control over my diary, the space, how I um, build my day. I need to go outside every day. I need to walk my dog. I need to have time out away from the computer and social media. I need to decompress. I've got four kids. And so I have to make time for myself. I really do. Like it's not a matter of going to get a manicure or, um, you know, go for a massage. I have to just have some space and some time that's mine where I can lean into the things that light me up, like reading, listening to a podcast, listening to music, cooking, things that make me, me and build the foundations of my regulated nervous system, because I want my kids to come home from school and the house to feel calm and grounded. I'm calm and grounded even, and I can't be that person for them if I'm not looking after myself, because I want to make sure that even if they've had a really bad day and come home and there's a meltdown and there's a tantrum, which there always is, I'm resourced enough, I'm recharged, I'm restored, I'm nourished enough, just enough, that's it. So I'm not asking for too much, but just enough to be able to navigate that situation without me having to, you know, lose my head completely. So I take my self-care really seriously. And that's why I I talk to my clients about this a lot. It's about boundaries, who I let into my world and what I choose to do and making the choices of what's outside of my control, what's inside of my control, the food that I eat, so many things, honestly, that I have to make choices. And there's lots of non-negotiables, but there's also things that I have to build in part of my day. It's like new behavior patterns that help me, like always having water on my desk, always making sure that I have had lunch because that then impacts when I go and pick my kids up. And if I'm hungry, then I'm angry and irritable. And then that has a knock-on effect for the rest of the day. So anyone that is listening and thinks that self-care is selfish or it shouldn't be prioritized, I would say that there's a real mindset shift that needs to be because the way we speak to ourselves and the way we are within ourselves has such an impact. It ripples out to so many people around us. 
And so it's vital, you know, and, and, and the success, you know, whether you are running your own business, you're working for someone else, or you're at home with your kids, whatever that is, it's so important that we are regulated so that can have an impact on, on everything else that's going on, our environment around us. And what advice, Kate, would you like to leave listeners with who are struggling with ADHD or who suspect they might have ADHD? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people find that self-diagnosis is valid. You may have gone through lots of reading and done lots of things. And if you're not interested in medication, but you just needed to have that acknowledgement, that's fine. I want people to know that because the waiting lists are long, unfortunately, you know, unless you're, you know, you're privileged to be able to spend thousands of pounds on a diagnosis, it's a long time to wait. So it's just a recognition that, you know, meet yourself where you are right now. And even if you do want that diagnosis and you do have to wait, you don't have to wait for the diagnosis. Start doing that work now. Read the books, listen to the podcasts, make little tiny shifts every day. Go to bed a little bit earlier. Make a decision to not be on social media just before you go to sleep. Carve in some time to go for a walk every day. Really start kind of making an agreement with yourself about the people that you want to hang out with and the people that sap you and the people who really kind of lift you up and and start moving towards those people and less, you know, to the people that you just kind of, I'm just not aligned with them anymore. It's little steps towards a more authentic life and it doesn't have to cost money. You don't have to go on a a retreat in Bali for a, a week. You can start doing it right now, every single day, a couple of minutes here and there. Sometimes for me, it's just going for a walk with no headphones on and just kind of having a bit of time to myself and externalizing my thoughts. I do a lot of EFT tapping as well. That's really helpful and it helps sort of let out restless energy, but also helps me manage my my thoughts, my anxiety really, really helpful. I've got resources on my website for that if you've never heard of it. But really just lean into what works for you. Meditation may not work for you, but going to a dance class or a Zumba class or um, going running may be what you need for your mental health. So just start listening intuitively with what's going on inside of you and not what other people expect of you or what you think you should be doing or what people in your friendship group are doing or your your job, start listening to yourself and start giving yourself that little bit of trust that you do know what's best for you. That's such a lovely bit to end on. So thank you, Kate. And I'm sure people will find this episode incredibly interesting and educative, regardless of whether they have ADHD or not, because I think it's something that touches most people. Well, thank you, Pandora. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.